Guys, welcome back to the After Action Review, Episode 4. You guys know me. I'm Nick Guy, the world's most okayest Green Beret. Guys, last time I spoke with you, we had John McAfee on. And Mr. McAfee was... He was fascinating. And we're going to leave it at that. You know, I said I was going to talk about the interview and share my thoughts, but I think I'm just going to let it stand for what it is. Uh, he, he, was an, he was a great guest. He had some fascinating insights. Uh, I know we didn't get to cover everything we wanted to cover with him, but at the end of the day, it was, it, it was fun. It was, it was fun, and I like hearing other opinions. So even though he and I have a fundamental disagreement regarding Che Guevara and how he can reconcile his libertarian beliefs with a full-blown Marxist and a statist who just had zero regard for due process, and he's a guy who believes that he was denied due process. It, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sweat it. It is what it is. It's out there. It's for your enjoyment. And we'll leave it at that. Mostly because we have some big things happening in the foreign policy realms. And I kind of want to get to those. McAfee, he, he was, he was a fun interview. He was, a, he's a fan favorite. But uh, since since uh, the interview, a couple things have gone down. I apologize. I've been busy, been busy with my real job, cracking the whip on me. So uh, I, I finally got some free time. It's currently eleven oh seven on a Thursday, December fifth, and I said I was going to record this yesterday, and I apologize because I, I was planning on it, but. I got busy writing a piece, and I'm very excited for this piece. You guys can catch it. Uh, it'll be published tomorrow, December 6th. So when this actually goes up, the piece will be up. Uh, I've written a piece for Human Events. Human Events is a phenomenal conservative commentary magazine that I've read for quite a bit of time. And... I've shared some thoughts on the NATO situation. So I'm not going to go into the NATO situation because I think the piece kind of encaps, it, it, it captures my feelings on what's going on in regards to NATO and the United States and the way forward. So with that being said, let's jump into a, some other news that's going on. Mainly today... The Department of Defense is considering sending thousands more troops to the Middle East to deter Iran. And this news is upsetting to a lot of people. It's upsetting to the, the to the counterculture conservatives who believe that the so-called conservative ink um, is, you know, consists solely of neoconservatives and things like that. And they think this is, you know, the war drums beating. And then you on the other side, you have people who, who believe that this is just, I don't want to say enticing, but it's upsetting to Iran and other powers in the Middle East. And that's basically what this move 
boils down to. It comes down to countering Iranian influence in the region. And I can speak a little bit to that. My third deployment to Syria, I would say by the halfway point, ISIS had been effectively eliminated in our area of responsibility. Uh, I was down in, the, in southern Syria. Our mission kind of shifted to a counter-Iranian mindset. And that counter-Iranian mindset focused along a, what we in the military called a high-speed avenue of approach. And basically, it was, it was a highway that ran from Tehran, Iran, to Beirut, Lebanon. And Iran was using this high-speed avenue of approach to move weapons, supplies, and money to their Hezbollah, I don't want to say counterparts, because they're not counterparts. Proxies? I think proxies would be a better word, because everybody knows that Iran controls Hezbollah. Everybody knows that. So they were using this highway to move arms, and the United States had established, uh, we called it a, a combat outpost or a cop, but in, in actuality, it was just this cluster of buildings, and it was situated along this highway. And we were there to deter Iranian freedom of movement. Now, our sister ODA, when, when we were deployed, we were deployed, you know, we were a company minus. So we had a couple of ODAs. We, we didn't constitute a full company where we were. But the the sister platoon, or I'm sorry, the sister ODA that we've always had a, had a close connection to through deployments and things like that had been occupying this combat outpost. And Iran buzzed it with a UAV. And then they dropped a bomb about 300 meters outside the outer perimeter of the combat outpost as a show of force. Or if you're an American, it's a show of aggression. It's pretty clear cut. Uh, we were conducting simultaneous operations about 30 to 40 kilometers away when we heard the call come up over the radio and we postured to supplement our sister ODA uh, had those <laughs> had the situation developed any further. We'll say we'll we'll leave it at that. And there were a couple other instances, a couple others that I'm not going to get into because quite frankly, I don't know uh, what's classified and what's not considered, you know, in, in regards to uh, Iranian influence and activity within Syria. So we'll leave it at that. But all you need to know is that Iran is absolutely 100% unequivocally flexing its muscles in Syria. And that's not good for U.S. foreign policy. So Iran has always been relegated to this regional power status. And this regional power status has been the status quo since about the 80s. Um, they were kind of threatening going beyond that. And then the Iran-Iraq war happened and things kind of got set back. Few other things happened in, in the 90s and in the, in the early 2000s. But since, I, I would say since 2006, 2007, Iran really started to get 
squirrely. And it started getting squirrely in the form of killing American service members in Iraq. Uh, Iraq, for years, suffered under a Ba'athist regime. And those Ba'athists were Sunni Muslims. Iran is a Shia Muslim country. And Iraq is a Shia-majority country. Well, after the Ba'athists were removed from power, you had a bunch of Shia Muslims who had, I would argue, legitimate grievances. And Iran took advantage of that situation. They armed Shia militia groups. They convinced them that U.S. presence was detrimental to an Iraqi future. They provided advisors. They provided weapons. They provided expertise in the form of making a nasty little number known as an explosively, for, explosively formed penetrator, an EFP. It is the next iteration of improvised explosive devices. I'm not an 18 Charlie. I am not a demolitions expert, so I'm not going to go into the science of it. But basically, all you need to know is that it shoots a super hard and super hot bullet of metal through its target. So IEDs, which had just used concussive blasts and heat to defeat targets, such as soft-skinned Humvees, the United States countered that by creating and fielding the mine-resistant armored personnel carriers, the MRAPs. Well, regular IEDs couldn't bust through them, but a superheated, massive 40-pound bullet shooting out of the ground at 700 miles an hour will absolutely defeat that armor. It doesn't matter how V-shaped the hull is, it's going to get through. So these are the ways that, that Iran started to kind of flex its power. And then in Syria, we started seeing it. Uh, where I was in, in southern Syria, we, we were responsible for southern Syria and, and southeastern Syria going up to the Euphrates Valley. And all along western Iraq, there were these Shia militia groups that were being armed and funded and trained by Iranian Quds forces. Uh, Al-Quds is Iran's... It's, it's, it's tough to call them special forces because they're kind of this this hodgepodge mission set of external security, intelligence, special operations, but 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 El Quds was they were training these Shia militia groups, or as we called them SMGs in Western Iraq, and they posed a serious threat to US forces in Syria. And so since then we've we've really seen this this huge, huge push by Iran to exercise its capabilities in, in the region. And I think that's what this decision comes down to. Um, I understand. I'm not here to, to say, I'm definitely not a war hawk. I'm not here to say more endless wars. I don't think it's a bad idea to send seven to 9,000 more troops to the Middle East, probably to establish bases in Iraq and Saudi Arabia, things like that, basically just to send a message. And the majority of these troops are, uh, they're you know they're counter air units. They're they're missile defense units. They're they are going over there to counter 
a threat that Iran's been highlighting in the past few months, and that is the short-range missile capabilities. We're not talking ICBMs. We're not even talking nuclear weapons. That's a whole other issue, Iran and nukes. But what they do have are conventional short-range missiles that can kill American service members. And these uh, counter-missile soldiers are going over there, and they have they have their capabilities to to potentially defeat these uh, short-range uh, missiles that Iran might fire at U.S. forces. So it, it's it's to me, it seems like it's a legitimate counter to the threat. I don't think it's indicative of a coming massive war. I really don't. I think if we were if 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 we were going to see the current administration start really beating the war drums and going all out on this, we'd be seeing, you know, infantry units, we'd be seeing armored units, we'd be seeing aviation units being mass mobilized to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. But we're not really seeing that. So I think this is a this is a measured approach to a current threat in theater. And I don't think we really need to be reading into it. Uh, 7,000 troops, it seems like a lot on the surface, but in actuality, it, it's it's a drop in the bucket. So it, it's the big news coming out of today. Um, I don't, personally, I don't, I don't see the big deal. Um, they're probably gonna go sit in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, and they're gonna have plenty of green beans, coffee to drink, and even a pool. Yeah, when I was, I spent seven days in Kuwait once when I was going over my, between my first and my second deployment. I came home from my first deployment. I got attached to the B team because I was a new guy. And I finished, the, I finished the deployment. I got sent home a little early because I was being assigned to an ODA. And so the, the B team sent me back and, and they sent me to sniper school. And I graduated sniper school and I went to my ODA, which was already deployed. And my at the time, my ODA was in northern Jordan, and and they were there right on the border of Jordan and Syria. And but on my way there, because I was I was a late movement with the team, I flew mill air. I flew military air. Usually, you know, we would fly commercial air, but I flew mill air, and I flew through Ali Al Salam. Air Base in Kuwait, which is a U.S. base in, in Kuwait. And it was the worst, most miserable six days of my life. First off, I got out of the plane. It felt like somebody had a hairdryer blowing right on your face on high heat. It was miserable. I think I actually arrived on like the hottest day on record in like 60 years or something. It was absolutely god-awful. But I got to Kuwait. I couldn't believe it. I had just come back from a deployment where I was in Erbil and going over the border to Hasaka and Kobani uh, back before we had these built-up U.S. presence in northern Syria. And we were kind of like on the cutting edge of the war in Syria. And it, it, for a new Green Beret, for a new guy, it was awesome. Like I was learning a lot. And we were, we were really kind of living the whole, when you think special operations in your minds, like just totally out in the middle of nowhere, no support. It, it, that's what it was. It was totally, it was badass. Um, and then I come and, you know, I, I come back and I go through 
what the Special Forces Regiment calls SODIC-2, uh, Special Operations Target Inter Interdiction Course. That's the junior sniper course. And then you have Special Forces Sniper Course, which is the senior course run out of Fort Bragg. But I went through SODIC-2 at Fort Campbell. So I ran through SODIC-2 and I deployed to meet my new team. But I had to stop at Ali Salam and I couldn't believe it. They had a swimming pool and a coffee shop and air conditioning and Wi-Fi. It, it, for six days, I couldn't believe that this was the same war fighting effort. But just goes to show there is a, a vast disparity in overseas experiences. I'll leave it at that. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm saying it's definitely worse. <laughs> But yeah, so that's probably where these these uh, these counter missile units are are going to be going is Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, things like that. Uh, moving along, and kind of in, in the same in in the same rate, you know, the same realm of Iran. Um, but it was just reported today by the Military Times that the U.S. is offering a fifteen million dollar bounty on for information on the Iranian planner of the 2007 Karbala attack that killed five U.S. troops. So, first off, a $50 million bounty is a lot of money. To put that in perspective, uh, al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, until about 2017, only warranted a $10 million bounty. Uh, Osama bin Laden, the, of course, the mastermind of the September 11th attacks, warranted a $25 million. But $15 million is a lot of money. So this commander who was the mastermind uh, of this attack, uh, and it's considered the most sophisticated attack against coalition troops in Iraq, and it killed five soldiers back in 2007. Um, but this, this Quds Force, going back to Quds Force commanders, goes by the name of Abdul Reza Shahlai. And I, again, I, I've spoken to it in previous podcasts. I speak Arabic. I don't speak Farsi. I don't consider myself a subject matter expert on Iran or the Persian people or the Persian language. But like I said, they've started to play a larger role in U.S. overseas contingency operations in the past few years. But this guy was was the mastermind that, and and I'm you know I'm just gonna read. I'm just going to read from the article because they do a better job than I could. So, for, so from the Military Times, the January 20th, 2007 attack on the Karbala province headquarters has been described as one of the most sophisticated attacks carried out against coalition forces in Iraq. Iran was believed to be behind the attack. It was reported that the attackers rolled up to the compound driving Suburbans and black Chevy Tahoes, with distinct IED jammers operated by coalition forces and carried proper vehicle placards known to be on U.S. coalition vehicles in Iraq. The attackers brandished, brandished American uniforms, weapons, spoke English, and knew everything about the compound and how it would be defended, according to the DOD spokesperson. Five American soldiers were killed and three others were wounded during the attack. Shahleh is also suspected of being behind some of the some of the sophisticated weaponry flowing to the Houthi rebels from Iran currently to Yemen. So basically, this guy carried out what was tantamount to a sneak attack. Uh, if you guys recall your world history courses from middle school and high school, you'll remember that German troops 
did the same during the Battle of the Bulge. They wore U.S. uniforms. They drove U.S. vehicles. They spoke English. That's exactly what they did. It was very sophisticated. It, it required a ton of planning. And it required nerves of steel to execute. And these guys did. And I think that just goes to show how dangerous Al-Quds can be. Um, when it comes to things like this, they are, I don't want to give them credit because they're absolute garbage human beings who perpetrate state-sponsored terrorism throughout the world, but they're very good at what they do. And I think we need to at least respect the game. Um, they're very good at that. Uh, so this guy, this guy was recently, they, they recently put a bounty on this guy's head. I mean, again, this, this attack happened in 2007. I, you know, we're, we're, we're now looking at, you know, 12 years ago, almost, almost 13 years ago. Um, and they're finally putting a name to, to the plan. And, and, and that probably has to do with, with, you know, Iran's foray into the, uh, Yemen conflict. Uh, yeah. Or, it's again it's a it's a very poorly guarded secret that Iran is funding Houthi rebels. Um I'm not going to get into the particulars of whether or not the United States should be involved in that conflict. Uh we've certainly been training Saudi forces and providing weaponry in their fight against Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh but Iran sees it as another opportunity to flex its its power in the region. Um, and, and the fact that the United States is now finally putting a bounty on this guy's head shows exactly how serious of a situation we might be in. And going over here again, this is just the actual, the, the department of the treasury's press release, uh, regarding the bounty on, on, uh, this El Quds commander. They also name a couple of other commanders, Mansour, our Arbatsir, Qasam Soleimani, and Hamad Abdulhai. So, uh, looks like what the United States is finally putting some names names to faces or names to actions at the very least. And we'll see how that plays out. Um, I don't think that it would be a stretch uh, to, to start seeing very specialized units within the United States Department of Defense uh, take an interest in that in in this this person's case, much as they did uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, Abdul Al Baghdadi. All right, again, moving right along. Sorry, guys, it's late. It's it it is late. You know, I I, I saw the real job in the morning, so I owed you guys a podcast. So that's what I'm going to do. So we're just kind of hitting the the big news of the week. All right. This story really, really rubbed me the wrong way. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because I have been saying, I've been saying for years that the United States has started to become this petri dish for social justice. Or the United States military has started to become this petri dish for social justice and things like that. And that creates toxic command climates. If we were to just go back to the standard of everybody being treated like a worthless piece of garbage, we wouldn't have any issues. We really wouldn't because everybody would be equally regarded as useless. We wouldn't have any of these issues. But because we've moved away from that, because we are a more sensitive military, because we are a more accommodating and accepting military, we have to be, pre we have to be prepared for the consequences. 
and we're seeing the consequences. 13 United States Marines. God, they, you know, this really this really rubs me the wrong way because I'm involved in in, in counter-human trafficking operations. I'm gonna give a quick shout out to the uh nonprofit organization I sit on the board for, Ghost Orchid Coalition. Uh, we're, we're, we have a lot of big plans. We've, we're working with a lot of counter-human trafficking organizations, and we're kind of bridging the gap between them. Um, and it's even something that I, I experience in my in my corporate job, uh, working in finance. You, you're starting to come across more and more human trafficking. So these 13 Marines, these... God, everybody's innocent until proven guilty, and they weren't able to prove them guilty. But these... 13 potential scumbags were charged with being involved in a human smuggling and drug trafficking operation. Seems clear cut to me. The UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, is pretty dead set on what is illegal and what is not. And this is pretty illegal, especially when other federal agencies, as it were, as they were in this case, we're tracking these activities. But the petri dish of social justice reared its ugly head. And the battalion commander, all 13 of these Marines, were in the same battalion out at Camp Pendleton, California. And this battalion commander calls a battalion formation. And they call out these 13 individuals by name to stand in front of the formation. And then there was a huge production of NCIS agents and DEA agents, and there might have even been a couple of FBI agents in there. Uh, let's uh, well, it, this one goes forty NCIS agents. So NCIS agents, but there were definitely other federal agencies uh, involved in tracking these activities. But forty NCIS agents storm in and arrest these 13 Marines in front of their formation. Huh. There is... There's only one problem. It's that a military judge ruled that the mass arrests constituted unlawful command influence, which refers to military leaders abusing their position to influence legal proceedings. And that's exactly what happened here. I mean, there's no arguing here. These these guys were pulled in front of formation and 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 rightfully humiliated, but that's not the way to do it because then uh, an attorney is going to look at this and say this is unlawful command influence. Like this this commander is thoroughly involved in this in this case. The the entire unit's perception of these marines is now skewed. The entire Marine Corps' perception of these Marines are now skewed. How? I mean, it's a valid argument. How could they receive a fair trial when this was publicized? The battalion commander had three people filming this. One from an elevated position so they could get the whole shot. It was like a Hollywood production. How would that not, how would that not influence a jury of these Marines' peers? It wouldn't. It, or I, I mean, it, it would. There was no way it wouldn't not influence a jury. And I know what this stems from. This was this battalion commander's attempt at signaling his virtue. That's what it is. I guarantee, I guarantee it. 
you know, officers, they love to flex authority, but I don't think that's this is what it was. This was an officer's opportunity to prove how open-minded he was and how empathetic he was to the victims of these potentially scumbag Marines. But that's not the way to do it. That's it's it's doesn't make sense to totally blow a case to to signal this virtue. But that's exactly what it is. Commanders are are competing for officer evaluation report bullet points, many of which play onto this whole inclusivity and ability to read social cues, things like that. That's what this comes down to. So because this officer was a, was so determined to make to put his name on this on these proceedings he totally botched prosecutors ability to charge these marines and guess what all 13 were not charged they're being discharged from the military but that's the military's prerogative the military can discharge anybody for any reason Obviously, they're going to discharge these guys, but the and I think there might have been, there might have even been some females involved here. I'm not sure, but let's just say guys. We'll we'll use the the non PC inclusive term of guys. Um, God, so they're being discharged, which is the military. It, it's totally within the military's ability and their prerogative, but they're not being prosecuted because this commander couldn't pass up the opportunity. He couldn't. It was too good. It would have been too good of an OER bullet point. And that takes me to my next point. We're going back to woke mill Twitter. Woke military Twitter. I love it. I've even stopped. I've, I've stopped arguing with these people because it's, it's, not, it's not worth the time nor the effort. It really isn't. But going on to Woke Mill Twitter and their opinion on command. I came across a retired colonel who tweeted this, and I'm quoting. It's a whole thread, but you only need to know the first tweet. Leaders, stop with the anti-intellectual humble brag. Quote, I'm just a country boy from insert state. It's disingenuous, harms the profession of arms, and perpetuates the civilian-military divide. Oh my God. Guys, listen. I don't come from the officer corps. I come from the NCO corps. I'm still in the NCO corps. Um, I was absolutely could have joined the officer corps after college. There was nothing stopping me other than the fact that I didn't want to be an officer. I wanted to be a very, very mediocre Green Beret. This though, this kind of falls right in. This this falls in line with this Marine Battalion commander who wanted to signal his virtue. It comes from this. I'm gonna say this leftist. It, it is. It, it it stems from leftism. This I think is such a toxic mentality from leaders. I think I think humbleness. And I think it was for years, and I still believe it should be a core component of a good officer. An officer should be humble. He, the, an officer should be humbled that they have the privilege of leading their soldiers or Marines or sailors or airmen 
That's a privilege. So if it is some corn-fed farm boy from Nebraska who gets a who gets a commission and takes command of an infantry platoon, he should absolutely be humble. And he should absolutely be be telling his men. I, I am just a humble country boy from insert state. God. No. This thread is all about it, it's 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 pseudo-intellectualism at its worse at its ugliest that's that's all it comes down to it's this leftist belief that they're better than you they're not better than you god especially the world i come from there there are so many ncos in the special forces regiment that have they don't just have degrees they have pedigrees they come from colleges and universities of the highest Academic Sandy. And I'm not here to brag about myself, but I went to a really good college too. I went to a great college, one of the best in the country. But this officer class that thinks that humbleness, and he calls it a humble brag, and he says it's disingenuous. It's not. I think seriously, like if you had some corn-fed farm boy from Nebraska who went to college on a football scholarship and then commissioned, he is going to be humble. That's not disingenuous. He's be, he's being 100% genuine. God, and then he talks about, to, and the, the thread goes into to telling these young leaders that, that they, they need to embrace this officer corps. <laughs> Me, personally, I'm of the opinion that a college degree shouldn't be the deciding factor in whether or not a man or a woman leads soldiers, marines, airmen, or sailors into combat. I think that's ridiculous. I think the officer corps should be drawn upon the non-commissioned officer corps and that somebody should have time as uh, a lower enlisted in time as a, a non-commissioned officer before they receive a commission. But that's my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. But this retired colonel forgets a very, very important fact. The soldiery is not an intellectual class. It's not. The officer corps might want to believe it is. The officers that go on and they start to play politics and they go off to Washington and their lives become a constantly revolving cocktail circuit. Yeah, they might want to believe that, but it's not. The soldiery is not an intellectual class. It's a learned class. A good soldier reads. A good soldier is a student. A student of history, a student of literature, a student of philosophy. Those are traits that make up a good soldier. But an intellectual, by definition, cannot be a doer. Intellectuals live in the abstract. They live in, in the cerebral. A soldier lives in the visceral world. God. I don't know what it is. We, I, I really do. I really do believe it's it's far left mentalities sneaking its way into into the military. This better than you thought process. This divide. This it, it kills me because this tweet goes back to it perpetuates the civilian military divide. No, it doesn't. It only perpetuates the officer enlisted divide. 
And there needs to be a divide. There needs to be. Officers give orders. NCOs carry out the, they, they enforce the orders. And Joe, the lower enlisted, they carry out the orders. That's how it works. That's how the military has worked. And that's how it will continue to work. But it has nothing to do with the civilian military divide. And I think the officer corps would be doing themselves a great service to try and bridge the gap between officer and enlisted. I really do. The military is a warrior caste. It is. It is totally separate from, from the civilian world. We should not have a well-defined... We should have a divide between officer and enlisted, but we should not have castes in the sense of medieval or Indian culture where the higher castes totally look down on the lower. That's not the way this works. God, this just tox this toxic mentality... It drives me nuts. God. And and to be fair, going into this guy's profile, again, I'm not, I'm, again, this podcast is not about putting specific people on blast, but th this is his, his profile. He ironically refers to himself as a globalist snowflake, semicolon, NATO, recovering speechwriter, history and policy wonk, tanks, and a hopeless romantic. I get that the whole globalist snowflake is a play on what the right might think of this guy, but seriously, NATO is is such a, an absolute. It's it's such a garbage show. It's a circus, and you guys can read my piece that's coming out on human events. Please read it. I I would love I would love you guys to read it. It's not super deep diving, but it kind of gives a good once over of the situation on hand. But like the fact that this guy is making light of that, and he's retired, so he's he's entitled to his opinion. But the fact that he's making light of this, I don't know. I, I, me personally, I like my I like my military officers to be one hundred percent dedicated to the United States. I'm not saying this guy is it has dual loyalty or anything like that. I'm just saying be be freaking be proud of the United States. Know that the United States is better than every other country on earth, and the military is the tool that ensures that it remains the best country on earth. So if you're if you're an officer in this nation's army, this nation's navy or air force or marine corps, god, puff out your chest a little bit. It's okay, it's okay to be an arrogant son of a bitch when you're in the military, especially when you're wearing the uniform of the United States. It's okay to be to be in, to to be that Praetorian class. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we're losing that in the military. We need to bring that back. All right, guys. Last thing. Eddie Gallagher. We talked about him way back when. It, it's but Eddie Gallagher remain. He remains in the news because, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because intellectually stunted policy wonks and journalists and commentators keep perpetuating this idea that he is a war criminal who was pardoned by Trump. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm, I'm not. We've, I feel like on Twitter, on social media, in the media, some people have been trying to say, you guys just need to pay a little bit of attention to detail. Eddie Gallagher was exonerated of any war crimes. He was exonerated. Trump interceded to save his trident and by extension his military benefits as he retires off into the sunset. Which is, again, totally within the purview of the office of the commander-in-chief. But 
Further, we got media outlets still referring to him as a war criminal. I have veterans on Twitter still referring to him as a war criminal. And I bring up the fact that he's exonerated. And they use, again, intellectually dis the intellectually dishonest argument. Well, O.J. Simpson was exonerated. And these are the same people that have the audacity to tell me how Trump totally undermined and cheapens the military justice system. These are the same people that says Trump cheapens the military justice system. And then they go ahead and they take a ruling from the exact same military justice system. And they just totally disregard it because they don't like the way it turned out. That's that is that is woke mill Twitter woke vet Twitter in a nutshell. God, it is. It's exhausting dealing with them. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, guys. It is just absolutely exhausting. And look at that. We're at 40 minutes, guys. My God, that flew by. Plus, it's my bedtime. Like I said, I had to, I had to go to the office in the morning. Look at spreadsheets, guys. As always, it was a pleasure. I know this. You know, I, 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 I prep what I'm going to say. I, I prep the topics I want to talk about. I don't prep what I'm going to say because I, I like keeping this like a conversation. I like keeping it informal. I like, it, it ta- one, it takes a lot of stress off of me that I'm not writing scripts. So, you know, it's it's going to be a little jagged. It's going to be a little rough in places. Uh, but this really is a format that I really do enjoy. It's kind of just a running dialogue. You know that... It's the same dialogue that goes on in your head all day, but you're too smart to open up your mouth, so it just stays up there. This is my this is my time just to let that dialogue out, that inner monologue. I think that's the literary term, the inner monologue. This is my inner monologue, and I'm making it an outer monologue. Guys, I appreciate you taking the time to watch this. We're, we'll wrap it up here. Big news this Sunday. Uh, I got I actually have to go. I have to go play soldier this weekend. Uh, it is a drill weekend for me. But this Sunday, I have everybody's favorite Green Beret officer on Twitter, Red Devil Snake Eater. Everybody knows Everybody, everybody knows Snake Eater. He kind of, he kind of floats between the the pocket of Green Beret Twitter and military Twitter. And and Green Beret Twitter is really not allowed in military Twitter because Green Beret Twitter tends to be far more crass and unapologetic for our beliefs than Mill Twitter is, which tends to be far more accepting of other beliefs. And I'm not saying we're closed-minded. We're just, we're stubborn in our beliefs. And that doesn't really play well in, in the sphere of military. He kind of floats it. And he's he's been he 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 has the respect of a lot of people. We're gonna bring him on. Um, God, I've I've known this guy for a long time. He's he's an NCO's officer. He's the exact kind of officer that you want on an ODA. Uh, he knows he knows what his job is as a detachment commander on an ODA is. Uh, he he's a dive guy. Dive guy. God, just become a SEAL. <laughs> he was a dive guy at 7th group. He's with 20th group. He's a, he's now a National Guard guy like me. Uh, I'm in 19th. He's in 20th group. Uh, but I respect him immensely. He is absolutely 100% the type of officer that if you, if you are a young officer listening to this, if you are a 
a cadet listening to this, if you're in one of the service academies or you're in ROTC and, you, and you're planning on commissioning, seriously, give him a follow on Twitter. Listen to what he has to say. He is he is the exact type of officer as an enlisted man that I want. And and I don't want to say it's high praise, but it is. Usually, like I said, we talked about that divide. He's actually working on bridging that divide. I'm not going to say he's working. He already has because he has the re- he has the undying respect of a lot of Green Berets, enlisted Green Berets, career non-commissioned officers who have been around the block and absolutely have the the WASTA, the credentials, and the bona fides to say the things that they say. And he's got their respect. So if he has their respect, he should have your respect. And you should really tune in. We'll be talking about the Army. We'll be talking about Special Forces. And we're going back to my favorite topic, Woke Mill Twitter. So he'll share his thoughts. It should be a great show. I'm really looking forward to it. It might be a little longer than, you know, I'm, I'm flirting between this 30-minute or at 45 because I rambled. But uh, it might be a little bit of a longer interview. Uh, it'll definitely be more insightful than the John McAfee one. That I promise. So, guys, thanks for stopping by. It's the After Action Review. I enjoy it. If you guys like it, do me a favor. Spread it around. Share it with your friends and family. I'm not asking for money for this. I'm really not. The whole Patreon thing, that's not really my gig. I can make money elsewhere. You know. You know how I do. Guys, thanks so much. You guys... You guys make it possible. I love hearing your feedback. Uh, it makes me happy when you guys tell me that you enjoy it. So uh, until Sunday, guys, I'll talk to you later.